Hello, everyone. This is the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast, and it's me, your host, Christian Basar. Today's episode is a little bit, I guess it would be kind of a continuation of what I talked about last time. Uh, last time, I looked at one of my old uh, university-level Russian um, history textbooks from 2002, uh, so quite an old one, but I put it in the framework of Hayden White. So Hayden White, again, being uh, a literary scholar, he wasn't an historian, but he talked about how historians use, like historians' works can be put into a literary framework, right? I talked a little bit about that, and I, I reviewed the textbook as well. So if you'd like, you can go back to the previous episode, and you can listen to that with more details about that framework of Hayden White. So now, I want to talk about history, science, and fiction. So the relationship between history and historical fiction can be controversial. It has been suggested, as Hayden White did, that historical narratives are very much like historical fictions in that they use the same language and form as literature. So this challenged historians' status, status as quote-unquote scientists. The difference is that historians find their stories while fiction writers and filmmakers invent theirs. But although I find White's argument intriguing, I believe that historical narratives and fictions, and, and the professions of historians and novelists, are indeed different. I argue this because the two categories of writing have completely different intentions altogether. And before going into that, I just want to give a quick little uh, Patreon message, and we'll get right into it. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I sure hope that you've been enjoying the thoughts given in the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations episodes. But I would like to ask if you would consider making a pledge to the podcast via Patreon. I have many projects in mind for this podcast, and the books, paper, and so on needed to produce the episodes will not be free. Help keep historical thoughts flowing so that we can interpret the past and learn from it. You may pledge any amount that you like, and whatever you choose to give will be appreciated. If you would like to donate, go to my Patreon link at patron.podbean.com slash historical thoughts. And again, that's patron.podbean slash historical thoughts. Now, let's get back to the episode. I will analyze two pieces of historical writing to help illustrate my argument. Again, that historical fiction and narratives are different from the, the works produced by actual historians. Novelists are not historians, and historians are not novelists. The first work is an historical novel, The Legion by Simon Scarrow. This story follows Macro and Cato, two Roman soldiers and friends serving during the time of Emperor Claudius. They have to hunt down Ajax, who is a gladiator who has started a massive rebellion. Simultaneously, Nubians start threatening the Roman Empire in southern Egypt. Macro and Cato's mission takes them through Egypt until they have to deal with both threats in vicious combat. This novel is a well-written and riveting story filled with exciting battle scenes. The author, Simon Scarrow, establishes historical context with an introductory and ending notes as well. The second piece I will analyze in it is an historical work on a similar topic, an actual history book called A History of Egypt Under Roman Rule by J. Grafton Milne. It's a rather old book, as the third edition was printed in 1924, but it offered a good summary of Egypt's history during its time as a Roman province. It started from the time just after Cleopatra and Mark Antony, and ends after the Arab conquest of Egypt in the 7th century. The book is divided into short sections that detail how each Roman emperor's reign affected Egypt. 
Because its span covered six centuries, a history of Egypt is of course much wider in scope than the Legion, which took place any time uh, in the years between 41 and 54 AD, which was the reign of Claudius. This history does not have too much in common with the novel. When it describes the reign of Claudius, there is no mention of a gladiator insurrection or a battle with Nubians. Milne does describe two raids performed by the Blemlius of Nubia, but these are not until the 3rd and 5th centuries, well after the novel's time setting. And Milne's book does not mention a Roman, quote-unquote, punitive expedition against the Nubians until the 6th century, which would have been the Byzantine Empire at that time. Scotto, however, notes that the Nubians and Ethiopians made frequent small invasions of Egypt. The two books both describe Jewish-Greek tensions. This plays a very minor role in the novel, as it is only mentioned once in a conversation between Macro, Cato, and the troubled governor Petronius. But this does help establish historical context. Milne describes multiple instances of these tensions boiling over into violence. Both writings also touch on troop placement in Roman Egypt. Most troops had to be stationed in the city of Alexandria to keep it stable. It was possible to keep small garrisons throughout the rest of the province. Scotto mentions this in the novel too, but the thin spread of troops causes a great problem when the protagonists have to deal with both Ajax's rebellion and the Nubians. Now that we've talked about the two historical works a little bit, what is the impact of historical fiction on historical study? So the so-called scientists of history. Anne Stevens says that the, quote, modern historical novel started in the late 18th century. These writings were perceived as, quote, factual fictions that simultaneously entertained and taught readers. A question arose in the 1760s as to what these new writings were. Were they histories or were they fiction? This was not a matter of simply reading a book. Quote, reading the represented past involved a new set of processes, including drawing parallels between the past and the present, reading history as a veil for a contemporary scandal, and comprehending historically probable yet invented characters and situations. End quote. Fiction's ultimate purpose is to entertain, or maybe, maybe you could also teach a lesson as well. Like, you know, a fable is not necessarily meant to entertain, but it's also meant to teach a lesson, like Aesop's fables, for example, or the parables of Jesus, perhaps. But this new field of historical fiction was a ripe field in which to make arguments by connecting readers to the past. Historical fiction became a part of historiography in that it gave representations of the past and, quote, filled gaps that historians had left open. Then historians were challenged when Hayden White entered the historical fiction discussion. He challenged historians by questioning their view that history was an empiricist exercise in looking into the past and, quote unquote, getting the facts straight. White then dropped another bomb when he suggested that histories were no different from filmmakers and novelists. <clears throat> Gasp. In his book, Metahistory, he noted that Michel Foucault and other European intellectuals, quote, challenged history's claims to a place among the sciences. They suggested that historical narratives were fictive, and White believed they were written like stories. Quote, verbal structures in the form of a narrative prose discourse. Histories were not written like physics papers or chemist dissertations with technical language or jargons. Instead, they were like literary pieces in that they used plotments, arguments, ideologies, and tropes, as we talked about last, last time in the podcast. White admitted that history was not fiction, but both genres ultimately used the same literary forms because that was the only way to describe representations of the past. 
White created a framework, or a, quote, theory of narrative explanation for analyzing pieces of writing. As we talked about last time, histories have different modes of emplotment. They can be tragic or romantic in that the protagonists f constantly fall in the face of difficulties, or they forever overcome and prevail. They can also be comedic or satirical. Comedies show the history, the heroes temporarily overcoming troubles, and satires present history, victories, and difficulties with a pessimistic sense of irony. History also develops in different ways, according to White's idea of formal argument. Historical narratives either progress in the context of their settings, or they develop according to clearly defined scientific historical laws. They can also change according to certain ideals, uh, i.e. they have ideological implications. Change happens in different ways, conservatively or very slowly with very little change, if at all, liberally with, quote, small tweaks of the machinery, or radically with cataclysmic change hoping for an imminent utopia. An anarchic ideological implication looks back nostalgically upon an earlier time in which humankind was pure and incorrupt. And finally, White had the idea of tropes. His tropes were the metaphor, metonymy, irony, and synecdoche. A metaphor uses one word to describe a completely different thing. In metonymies, attributes of an object are used to name that object. Irony describes an object by saying one thing about it but meaning another. And in synecdoche, quote, an attribute is to describe a quality thought to belong to the totality. So this model of narrative explanation was part of White's challenge to, quote, scientific history. And for this, he was seen as a tour de force. However, this model is hard to apply to the history I analyzed for this paper, A History of Egypt Under Roman Rule. Admittedly, admittedly, this history is not very narrative, as it does not make an argument for or against a particular idea in your Egyptian history. It simply tries to retell the events, quote, as they happened. Having said that, there are some common themes throughout the history that may allow us to use White's model. First, there was the ethnic trouble between the Jews and the Greeks, which I mentioned earlier. A second common event in Roman Egypt was readjustment of the currency. Milne described a period of prosperity before an eventual gradual decline in the economy, and especially in agriculture. Rebellions accompanied to this decline, adding to the tragedy that befalled Europe until the Arab conquest. But was this book a tragedy according to White's modes of employment? When describing these events, Milne uses words like, quote, marked evidence, suggesting that he is not simply making things up to make things events sound tragic. Assuming that these events did happen as described, is Milne truly using a literary technique or is he simply relaying information? I'd, I would believe the latter. You know, what would make, according to the evidence Milne had, you know, when he talks about marked evidence that this, 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 this happened and this, this, this happened because of that, you know, all he's doing is relaying the facts as he saw them, right? This is not literary really in the way of like, um, Oh, making something up and then using literature or forms of fiction for that. You know, I, I don't really see how that connects. Does the history book have an ideological implication? It talked about changes occurring over centuries in which in, in which some events, such as currency reevaluations, were repeated. This would seem to suggest a slow conservative implication. Okay, all right. What about a formal argument? The, the book was quite broad in its subject matter, touching on military affairs, the economy, famines, and religious matters. So there was no discernible central argument that dealt with all of these different topics, and, and it does not suggest a set of historical laws that influenced events in Roman Egypt. 
And finally, I would suggest that this book might use synecdoche as a trope, perhaps. If we have to force it into a White's model, okay. It uses an attribute of the province, its currency and agricultural woes, to describe the whole process of its, quote, declining prosperity. So, what, what is the big deal about White's challenge to how history is represented? Firstly, it was a direct challenge to history's status as a non-literary science, non-fictional. Michel Foucault made a similar attack on, quote, fictive history when he suggested that history was an instrument of power and even a, quote, bourgeois invention. Okay. A capitalist currency to suppress the lower classes. Right? This idea. The, again, kind of going to this, the, the idea of Marxism where there are certain laws where everything is revolving around class struggle. So even things like art or even things like... Um, or even things like history, as Foucault was trying to argue with, if you have fictive history and, you know, you're going to use that to suppress lower classes for the benefit of the capitalist upper classes, right? So that's, again, kind of a law of Marxist interpretation of something. And even, like, on the other side of the coin, you know, the, the, the Nazis during Hitler's time, they were also talking about art being, you know, depraved or whatever, or certain forms of modern art being, you know kind of Judeo-Bolshevik or, or um, like a Jewish corruption of, of art, right? That's how they saw it. And that's, you know, the, the garbage that they were spewing out as well. So this kind of, the it's kind of interesting to see how this is an example of kind of a, a Marxist interpretation of history saying that this is bourgeois, this is everything. And so writing a fictional history or what was claimed to be an, a, a fictive history was a capitalist conspiracy. So that's what happens when you look at the world through one set of glasses. Foucault abandoned meta-narrative in favor of analyzing super-specific areas of, quote, knowledge and power regimes. This thinking influenced the, quote, new historicists who abandoned objective empiricist thinking. Instead, they focused on how historians communicate the past and how it's perceived. To them, history became a collection of histories, which are human constructions that influence society. They reduced history to a study of philosophies and worldviews, not a progressive series of events. New historicists sought to answer, quote, What did people think? We are not concerned about what really happened. According to this view, it is very hard to answer what is real. This is similar to Hayden White's belief that historians did not write, quote, transparent records of the way things, quote, really happened. White and Foucault's assertions automatically seem to devalue historical study, even though White, again, did not intend to debate historical facts or the field's validity. These kind of challenges made historians retort something like this, Our serious science is not the same as literature. Quote, We meticulously research documents and write accurate histories based on that research. So-called attacks on their profession cast doubt on the true past, while literature, though important to culture, were meant to be explicitly fictional. White's argument is not the first time there was concern about the relationship between fiction and history. This was also a problem in the 1800s, when historians were afraid about fiction, fiction corrupting their field. History was propped up as an absolute truth, while fiction was perceived as the opposite of truth, fiction. And history could be fictionalized, leading to partisan quote-unquote, false readings of it. This created dangerous ideologies and led to cataclysms such as the French Revolution. Because of this, history had to be correct, objective, and scientific. That's what the argument was. That's what the thought was. 
Jorma Kalela, sorry, I apologize if that's Jorma or Jorma, I'm not sure, agrees that White's challenge sparked a needed discussion in historiography. It helped historians look at the use of, quote, literary techniques and better, more persuasive narratives. But Kalela argues that White's framework of emplotments, implications, and tropes is somewhat simplistic. He suggests that White constricted historians by shoving them into such a narrow framework. And as we saw with the history of Europe under Roman rule, narratives can be difficult to categorize using White's model. That's that's exactly what I was saying. You know, it's like how how do you call a textbook a comedic textbook? How do you call it a comedy? You know, it's very it's very difficult, I find. And it's like, you know, if someone is just portraying the facts, how are you and someone's just writing the facts about something in the past, you know, how how are you going to try and put it into a literary model? And I mean I mean, I know that White was not, was saying, White's whole argument was saying that history wasn't a science like, uh, say, chemistry or astrophysics. But, but I mean, like, if I dare say this, like, let's, let's take the, let's go that far. Let's take an astrophysics, uh, astrophysics, um, um, report and put it into that framework too. I mean, might as well, if we can do it with anything, let's do it. Or let's do it with religious texts. Let's put the Bible into that framework or the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or something like that. You know, let's put that into, I mean, I guess some would say that uh, religious writing is more like literature than a science project. But but at the same time, it's, it's like with a framework, it's so difficult to, like you kind of have to force it into something like a mold it's kind of it's kind of difficult and also do you do that with every historical paper you know that's kind of the thing like how useful is that model really i can understand that if you you, you i can understand in the way um that you can use a framework to say if something is comedic like for something is if if you have a history of russia and it's a fairly has a it's fairly comedic in that and according to white's framework you know, okay, then you're you the person who wrote this is very optimistic about Russian history or if someone is I writes an ironic piece about Russian history, maybe they are overly critical of Russian history and they're using irony to I don't know, castigate it or or uh or do something like that, who knows. Uh but frameworks such as those they're I don't know. They I don't know how useful they are. I can see its uses, but how useful they are you know, I'm not sure. That's so. That's what um, that's what Kalela was saying. That this model is sort of simplistic, right? Again, constricting historians by shoving them into such a narrow framework. It's 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 difficult. So, why do I personally believe that historical and fictional writing are different? Ultimately, as Anne Stevens says, historical fiction is again fiction, and it is not meant to be read as true history. As said earlier, fiction helps fill in the gaps. It does this by telling the stories of regular people instead of great conquerors and monarchs, potentially. It helps readers sympathize with historical characters and the particular context in which they lived. Simon Scotto's novel, The Legion, offers a glimpse of life in the Roman army. We sympathize with Macro and Cato as they endure visceral combat and exhausting marches. History books certainly touch upon such conditions, but they will likely not describe it in such detail as fiction will, and readers will not likely empathize with the historical characters as histories do not focus on characterization. Through such novels as The Legion, we are allowed to imagine what life would be like as a legionnaire, and it makes the history real for us. 
and I guess another another realm could be historical autobiography. You know, you can read memoirs of historical figures like a Zhukov or soldiers on the Eastern Front or something like that. So that is another form, but that that again is supposed to be well, supposedly the words the the writer's own thoughts and everything. So you know, then you have to be worried about biases and stuff like that. But that, like historical fiction, can put you in the shoes of that historical figure who's writing this memoir or diaries, first-hand accounts, and so on. Fiction offers entertainment and attachment and empathy with the characters. History is meant to inform. They do intersect, as accurate historical fictions can inform, and histories can be written in entertaining ways. As White himself said, quote, there are many histories that could pass for novels and many novels that could pass for histories. But again, this does not make the field the same. You know, as like I said before, should White's challenge apply to science too? Do science fiction novels make popular science and astronomy books less valuable? Science fiction novels, while entertaining, may also pose interesting scientific theories. I mean, look at Star Trek. Science books contain actual information, even though they may be written in entertaining ways. Look at Bill Nye the Science Guy. When I was growing up, I loved that show. I learned something and it was entertaining. Yet the two genres are different, simply because they have completely different purposes. The same is true for histories and historical fiction. White may object to my example by saying that scientists are expected to use technical language, which is full of indoctrinated jargons and science-specific terms. Historical writing, he says, is literary, for it does not use the technical language of science. And this is an intriguing argument. Historical narratives can indeed be categorized as romantic, conservative, etc., according to White's model. But historians are still bound by rules or laws that novelists are not. Historians must not invent their stories like novelists can. They need to carefully research primary documents being bound to the laws and methods of research just like any journalist or somebody outside of the literary field. This makes historians and fiction writers completely different people. Historical writing has imagination, according to George G. Eggers and Q. Edward Wang. Historians must have the imagination to figure out their arguments and craft their narratives. But, quote, literature is not bound by the same standards of inquiry which govern this community of scholars. Ian Mortimer implied that history is an art, but historians must still stick to their roots. They should have imagination, of course. You know, you should be able to, if you're writing a, an historical book or an historical paper, you do need to think about how am I going to frame this? How do I write this? What words do I use? What words are more effective? And so on. You do need to do that. But they should. But you should also follow the rules of the discipline, right? Just sticking to the facts as we see them. Historical fiction also puts in a lot of things that historical narratives, actual historical books, do not. They include created characters, and authors write their own dialogues. Elements are invented for historical figures, such as the English King Henry V in Shakespeare's play of the same name. With fiction writing comes the danger of anachronism. That's another thing, connecting the past to the present in contexts that are incorrect, anachronism. Writers may look at the past through their own eyes without appreciating the context in which their characters lived. Now, I do need to think about this too. Readers can do this as well. As a religious example, for, as a religious example, for instance, many Christians look at the final book of the Bible, Revelation, through the lens of their own time instead of through what John the Apostle might have meant. So they will look for predictions about the end of time, perhaps seeing the war in Ukraine as a sign that Jesus is returning soon. Forget the fact that Jesus himself told his disciples that only God the Father, not Jesus, God the Son, knew when this would happen. 
Some may also see in Revelation references to the mark of the beast and the number 666, putting them into modern context. They will thus fear the European Union, Russia, China, or even COVID-19 vaccines, fearing that they contain the chip or the so-called beast's mark. So readers can do this as well, just as much as historical uh, fiction writers can do that. Historical novels, says Melissa Raby, must also, quote, separate modern ideas from actions in the past. Raby continues with the example of medieval women, who were, quote, unlikely to obtain literacy, but some novelists might ignore this to write an uplifting yet inauthentic story in which a character rises above her station and follows her dreams. Nowadays, there is some controversy, and I would say fake outrage about diversity in series and films. The latest example of this, I suppose, would be a, uh, a Black Mermaid, which has made many people upset. I think this is very silly. There's nothing wrong with, with reimagining a story with different pe people of different backgrounds or ethnicities. There's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, putting it, having someone who is a, a Black Mermaid instead of a White Mermaid and people get upset about that, that, that's just really, really silly and really stupid. And that's, and, you know, that's the nature of art and reimagining. When you want to reimagine something, you know, you'll put your own twist as a, as a playwright or as a, as a writer, you know. So that's why we do have, um, you know, twists of the classic novels such as, um, I think it's what, Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen and then somebody, I'm, I've, I, um, I'm afraid I don't remember the name of the author, but uh, made a Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters, right? Kind of recreating the story to add sea monsters to Jane Austen's novel. So, you know, that's, that's the nature of art. That's reimagining. That, that's fine. However, things change a little bit when we're talking about historical fiction. If people want to reimagine history, I think that's fine. You know, um, uh, Quentin Tarantino's movie, Inglorious Bastards, did that. Um, and some video games and movies have done this. So, so that's fine. But it, it, it depends on the intent. You know, for example, like if you include African-Americans in military roles during World War II that they didn't have in real life, that's a bit of a bit of a different situation. So I need to make an apology and a correction here. Uh, I briefly, in, in my previous upload of this episode, I briefly mentioned Spike Lee's film Miracle at St. Anna. And I incorrectly believed that his portrayal of African-Americans fighting in Italy was an anachronism. So it turns out that that, that was an actual historical fact of African-Americans fighting in, um, in, in Italy, uh, but I believe with the Buffalo soldiers. So I was, um, I did not know this at the time, and so I would like to correct that. So indeed, that wasn't an anachronism. And indeed, the, the fact that that was happening, that wasn't an anachronism at all. So I wanted to um, apologize and upload, re-upload this episode to make this correction. Band of Brothers only had, I believe, one single black person in the whole series, and he was a truck driver that didn't speak a word. He was an extra. So this reflects the unfortunate historical reality of segregation in the U.S. military during World War II. However, it, you know, that, that is one thing. You know, so if someone wants to reimagine the past with, in that way, but if you're trying to portray the accuracy, that's where you need to be careful. Uh, however, it must be noted that despite segregation, African Americans did fight in World War II, such as in the fighter squadron known as the Tuskegee Airmen, and one of the Marines raising the flag on Iwo Jima was also a Native American. Now, if someone wanted to go back into the past and create a whole new imaginary unit, 
And then this imaginary unit would be filled with um, with African-American soldiers and other people who would have been marginalized in, in the United States during World War II. I think this would also be fine. You could use such a story to um, discuss racism, inequality, and other important issues that need to be addressed uh, even today. And you can you can use that as a lens to look back on the you know the the realities of that time. But the problem would be in that case, in that hypothetical movie, that if this was being marketed as history and not a reimagining, right? Reimagining is fine, but if you're reimagining and saying, oh, this is the true story and you know this is accurate and stuff like that, no, you need to make that line clear. If filmmakers and fiction writers are claiming that something is based on history and claiming to be historically accurate, reimagining is not smart. Creators also shouldn't add something outlandish to a film or story because they think it looks cool or maybe they did it, maybe they did do it historically. Ridley Scott, when he was filming the movie Gladiator, he had some things where he had historical advisors saying, well, I don't think the Romans did that. And then he said, well, they bloody well do now. So that's kind of... Um, uh, a situation where if you you know, think something looks cool and it, it's ahistorical or whatever, that's where it becomes a bit of a problem. And I think this is also especially true in documentaries. You know, make sure your reenactors look accurate. They have accurate clothing and so on. They're the proper ethnicities of the of the time you are portraying and the context you are portraying, right? And documentaries and movies claiming to be historically accurate and are not the place for reimagining or altering the facts. Again, I stress again. If you want to reimagine something, that's that's great. You know, that's great. But make sure that that is in the realm of fiction, not claiming to be actual history. In the Legion, the Nubians attack Upper Egypt because the Romans destroyed villages and took thousands into slavery in retaliation for the killing of a, quote, scientific expedition of cartographers. When Cato says to Governor Petronius, quote, and naturally you sent out a punitive column, readers catch into the irony of the Roman response. But nowhere in the novel do the protagonists have second thoughts about their role in the Nubian conflict. They were soldiers who simply see the Nubians as enemies that need to be stopped. This absence of moralizing makes Cato and Macro believable soldiers serving in that time. Did Roman soldiers have moral doubts? I'm sure some did. They were, after all, human. Nowadays, though, it's easy to condemn actions done in the past because we know better about imperialism, conduct, and war, and so on. Or at least we're supposed to. But even though there are moral absolutes that must be applied in every time period and every place, we need to remember that not everybody thinks like us, especially people from the ancient past. When writing historical fiction, the moral context of that time and that society need to be considered. Would an ancient Roman soldier respond like us with moral revulsion to the idea of invading another country? You know, did all Americans condemn the wars in Vietnam and Iraq? And applying this to the present, do all Russian people see the invasion of Ukraine in February as a bad idea? So that's the thing. You know, we can see it from our context and our time, um, and we can we can moralize the, the past in a way. But again, if you're trying to create historically accurate or at least historically compatible fiction, you need to consider that, well, maybe not every Roman soldier thought like this. You know, you want to kind of get in the mind as much as possible. So that's why I think if you're an aspiring historical fiction writer or whatever, know the history as much as you can. You know, read more than just the events of the history, but read the mindset, read the, uh, read the philosophy, read the thinking, read the original things that people wrote and those kinds of things, right? And so then you get a more complete picture. 
at least of the picture that we're able to have today, after hundreds or maybe even thousands of years. If they are done correctly, histories, as in history books, will be less likely to offer anachronistic moral lessons. Because of the laws of historical research and writing binding them, wise historians will put their narratives into the correct context. Though Simon Scarrow did this as well, he was not obligated to. If he wanted to moralize about the Nubian conflict, he was certainly within his rights to do so, since he was writing, again, an historical novel, not a history book. It's like what I said earlier about reimagining. But if a historian did moralize the conflict between Rome and Nubia, he or she could attract professional criticism and potentially lose some credibility for not taking context into account for a piece of historical research. So that was one of the things. Like if if a novelist, if a historical novelist wants to moralize and things like that, that's fine as long as it's being shown that this is a work of this is a work of fiction. This is my view of the past and everything like that. But when you're talking about history, like actual historical research, that's different. This is one of the many things that his separates historians from novelists. Hayden White said that these two professions are doing the same thing because they use the same literary language, so to speak. But just because they use the same language doesn't mean they do the same thing. Historians and fiction writers are crafting different kinds of documents, even if their fields do... Historians and fiction writers are crafting different kinds of documents, even if their fields do occasionally seek to tell narratives. They are meaning to do different things. The historian is trying to inform readers about the past and novelists want to entertain. The historian can be assured that his or her discipline is different from literature, not only because of this, but also because history has rules of objectivity and research that do not bind novelists. Despite what Michel Foucault and others might say, history is supposed to be objective, right? You know, and the, and you, you can have different opinions and so on, but at least it's supposed to be objective, right? And that's that's the thing too, because some nations, some kings, some governments in the past could uh, want the, the history to be good for them, <laughs> right? You know, like the primary Russian chronicle, for example, it talks about, you know, Prince Vladimir, the the the, the grand prince of, of Kiev and Rus, you know, the, it talks about him before his conversion to Orthodox Christianity as this awful person, and I believe like this morally... Uh, corrupt person and and all of that, but then he changes when he converts, right? So, I mean, did Vladimir actually have that kind of lifestyle? I mean, it's possible, but the fact that this was a um, kind of a national chronicle, you know, and also a lot of this, uh, a lot of the content is kind of seen as mythical, like I talked about in the last podcast, but the thing is that this, um, this work is meant to show him as they say, yeah, no, I was, he was a terrible person when he was pagan. He was a terrible person and just awful evil. And then he becomes eventually a saint under Christianity after he converted. So it's, um, it's one of those things as well. So history can be corrupted and become a form of historical fiction for a political end, right? That's, that's the one thing that also needs to keep to come together. But to sum it all up, I think that Hayden White's um, framework is very interesting um, frame, putting historical narratives, even textbooks and so on, into um, into a f literary framework. I think that's very interesting, but at the same time, to say that historians are just literary people because they use the same language as a novelist, I don't quite buy that argument personally because they are writing a story and they are trying to be like a scientist, like a detective, looking at the facts and looking at the documents we have 
and coming up with the proper conclusions. That's the objective. You know, the historian, yes, the historian does have biases that we'll always have. That is, that is always true. But we are trying to be objective in that way. So that's it uh, for today's episode. And I uh, would like to thank you for listening. And take care and uh, of yourselves and each other. Bye-bye. <laughs>